Hi, my name is Annalise Collins, and welcome to Love Chapel Hill, where our name is our mission, to love Chapel Hill with the heart of Jesus. Good morning, Love Chapel Hill. My name is Brooke, and I am here to tell you about an exciting new connections opportunity that we are doing, and that is a watch party on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. So one of the things that I have really been missing is seeing everybody's face on Sunday mornings in the varsity. And so I wanted to kind of create that environment while we are still socially distanced. So I will be hosting watch parties on Sundays at 10 a.m. You'll just come into the Zoom room. We'll be watching the sermon together. And then afterwards, we can just talk. We can take prayer requests, whatever you all want to do. But just a way to say, hey, and, you know, see people on Sunday mornings um, because I've been really missing that connection. So I really hope that this is something that you are interested in and would like to join me in. And I am so excited to see everyone's faces on Sunday mornings. Hello, Chapel Hill. My name is Brenton. I just want to take a moment to invite you to connect with us if you haven't yet. If you're new or maybe you've been with us for a while um, and you've been looking for a way to connect, I'd really encourage you to go ahead and fill out our connect card. Um, but you can find a link to that in the description to this, of this video whether or not you're watching it through Facebook or through YouTube. A couple ways you can connect with us would be through our virtual watch party that we have every Sunday. We also have small groups. We have a different kind of small group called um, Discipleship Bands. And we also, we also have prayer meetings and a Bible study called The Story. Um, I have been watching for a while and just watching the sermons for a while. And I went ahead and filled out the connect card. And through Joel, um, I was able to get connected to the Bible study, the story, which has been really great to be able to um, find some community in a lot of welcoming people and um, kind of go through the book of John. And then now we're going through the book of Acts. Um, I would really encourage anyone who is looking um, for a community in a time where I feel like a lot of people might feel a little bit disconnected um, to take that step. Um, you can also check us out at lovechapelhill.com for more info on other ways you can connect and serve. Um, hope to see you soon. Hi, Love Chapel Hill family. My name is Rachel Walmer. I have the privilege of helping out with our children's ministry, Quest Kids, and want to invite your kids to join us. Whether your family has been coming to Love Chapel Hill for many years, or you've recently started attending, we'd love to have your kids come hang out with us, learn more about Jesus, and play games at Quest Kids on Sunday mornings. We have a fantastic group of kids and a great team of volunteers. At the moment, we are meeting virtually on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. You can't ask for better timing because while your kids are having a blast at Quest Kids, you're free to join the watch party. You can find more information on our church website or you can email questkids at lovechapelhill.com. We look forward to having your kids join us. Christ is my reward for all of my devotion. There's nothing in this world that could ever satisfy. Through every trial, my soul will sing, no turning back. 
been set free. Christ is enough for me. Christ is enough for me. And everything I need is in you. And everything I need, Christ my all in all, my joy and my salvation. This hope will never fail. Heaven is our home. Through every storm, my soul will sing. Jesus is here. To God be the glory. And Christ is enough for me. Christ Decided to follow Jesus, no turning back, no turning back, and I have decided to follow Jesus, no turning back, no turning back. I have decided to follow Jesus, no turning back. No turning back, and I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. And Christ is enough for me. Christ is enough for me. Decided to follow Jesus, no turning back, no turning back. I have decided to follow Jesus, no turning back, no turning Joy. 
Today is the fourth Sunday of Lent and the 52nd Sunday of gathering like this for worship online together. Um, in a way, uh, this has been like a year-long Lent experience, um, an experience of wilderness, an experience of loss, an experience of uh, giving things up, um, an experience of mourning. And uh, for an entire year, 
we've been meeting like this as a church uh, in response to the reality of the global pandemic uh, that we are still in the midst of. Um, more than half a million fellow Americans who have lost their lives, and we mourn that. Um, more than two and a half million fellow humans from our global community who have lost their lives, and we mourn that. It's been a very long and hard year on everyone uh, in many different ways. Um, and at the same time, I am extremely encouraged as I look back and I see that it's also been a year, not just of masks and of six feet apart and of virtual school and Zoom meetings, and work from home and, and all of that uh, that you have all navigated. Uh, but it's also been a year of pulling together, a year of love bridging the distance, a year of caring for neighbors, um, of making sacrifices for the sake of others around us, um, of putting, as Paul challenged us through the book of Philippians uh, that we were in towards the beginning of this together um, to put others ahead of ourselves. And so many of you have done that. Uh, you've shown up in so many different ways, whether that's uh, on Sundays, showing up here at the varsity, uh, bringing food um, or clothing to our friends who are experiencing homelessness, to people who are part of our church family who are in the midst of that, uh, or showing up for your neighbors um, or showing up for your family. Um, it has been incredible to see the way that you have responded. And I just want to say thank you um, on behalf of uh, the church. Thank you to the church for the way that you have lived this out. Um, you have lived up to your name. You have lived into your mission. Uh, and I am incredibly humbled and proud to be a part of this church family with you. Um, yeah, we're still in it and we're still in it together. So today we are continuing in the gospel of Matthew. Um, we're going to stay where we were last week in Matthew chapter nine, and we're going to work our way through the rest of chapter nine together. Uh, but we're going to do this in a little bit of a different way, um, from the way that we've been walking through the gospel together so far. Um, one of the practices that we are sharing together through the season of Lent, this 40-day season, uh, walking with Jesus on this journey towards the cross, uh, this season of fasting, um, one of the things that we have been doing together, a shared practice, is that not only have we been fasting, but we've also been feasting and doing that intentionally on a passage of Scripture from the Sermon on the Mount. At the beginning of Lent, uh, we challenged each other, and many of you have been giving feedback on how that's going for you. Um, we challenged each other to meditate on either a verse or a, or a piece or a passage from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, um, to meditate on that so that it runs through our minds daily, so that it will sink down into our hearts, so that it will spread out into our souls and then work its way out of our lives and into the world around us. 
through the common and everyday acts of who we are. And so we've been uh, meditating on that together and feasting on that together, following the model of Jesus in Matthew chapter four, who um, when he was fasting in the wilderness, uh, not only was he fasting, but he was also feasting on the word of the father. It tells us through that time. And uh, so you picked different pieces. Uh, I've heard from several of you that you chose to uh, meditate on the Beatitudes, uh, to memorize them, to internalize them, and to spend time there sinking down into them. And uh, that's the passage that I chose as well. Uh, so daily, I've been going back through that um, and walking through that. And um, what we're going to do today is actually look at Matthew chapter 9, through the lens of the Beatitudes. This practice for me uh, opened my eyes to see Matthew chapter nine in a way that I have never seen it before. And something strange happened as I was studying through this. And I started to see the Beatitudes being acted out uh, in Matthew chapter nine. And here in this ninth chapter of Matthew, um, I saw... Uh, this pattern emerge of all nine of the Beatitudes being um, acted out in this visible kind of way. And so we're going to look at that together, flowing out of this feasting that we've been doing together. Once again, we talked about this some last week, but Jesus is the lens through which we understand and interpret Scripture. Jesus is the key to interpreting and understanding Scripture because He is the fulfillment fulfillment of scripture. Uh, John calls him the word made flesh. Um, and he does that. He does that with his own words. Yes, he's the word of God made flesh, but he also does that. Uh, when he speaks, things come into existence, but also when he teaches, when he tells stories, when he casts images for us to try to grasp, as we look at his life, we see those teachings being acted out in the way that he lives. And that's happening right here in Matthew chapter nine. We say all the time that the greatest commentary of the word of God is the word of God itself. Uh, that the Holy Scripture inspired by the Holy Spirit uh, is in this conversation with itself and, and enlightening us as we study one piece of it. Other parts of the Scripture are speaking to that and helping us to understand it. And if the Word of God is the greatest commentary on the Word of God, then how much more is that true for the Word made flesh? And so Jesus is that key for us to understand. And over and over again, He speaks and things come into existence. He teaches. And then in flesh and blood actions, we see this lived out in a way that we can grasp, in a way that we can understand. So anytime you're struggling and feeling confused about a passage of scripture. Anytime you're feeling confused and wrestling with and struggling with a teaching of Jesus, look to his life and see the way that it gets played out and the way that it gets lived out in his life. We're gonna start um, by reading the Beatitudes together and just put ourselves in that frame of mind. Matthew chapter five, uh, right at the beginning, of the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to start with verse three. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So now I'm going to invite you to turn over to Matthew chapter 9. So flip over there and and keep that open uh, on this chapter as we walk through that chapter story by story. And we're going to see how the Beatitudes are acted out uh, right in front of our eyes. So Jesus begins uh, with blessed are the poor in spirit in the Beatitudes. This is the first one. And any of us who are meditating on this, many people have have reached out about this. Uh, People who have studied this before will admit this, that this is probably the most confusing of the statements that Jesus makes in the Beatitudes. What does he mean when he says, blessed are the poor in spirit? How do the words in spirit change our understanding, expand our understanding of that? Um, Is Jesus talking about the materially poor when he says this, blessed are the poor? What does he mean? Well, we know that he at least means blessed are the materially poor. We know this uh, because we constantly through the life of Jesus, again, he's the lens through which we understand what he's trying to say. Over and over again, we see him leaning towards those who are experiencing poverty. Uh, we, we see him over and over again leaning towards those who are the marginalized in society, those who are in desperate need. He doesn't only lean towards them, but he situates himself among them on purpose. Jesus becomes poor. Look at his life and you cannot deny that fact. In our capitalist society, it is very tempting for us to spiritually explain this away, to use the words in spirit, to hide behind and to shield ourselves from a critique that I think the Holy Spirit wants us to face. Uh, I know I've been guilty of that myself, of using these words as a way of softening the blow and hiding behind them. And I don't think Jesus intends for us to do that. One of the ways that we are challenged by that is the fact that in the gospel of Luke, Luke also records um, a version of the Sermon on the Mount uh, and a list of Beatitudes. And in that version, Jesus says, blessed are the poor. And he stops there. There is no in spirit in Luke's version. Blessed are the poor, he says. Um, So we know that he at least means that and nothing and he doesn't mean less than that uh, also in the gospel of luke in luke chapter 4 
Uh, so the Beatitudes are found in Luke chapter 6. Uh, but in Luke chapter 4, um, we have recorded what is uh, referred to as the first sermon that Jesus preaches. And in his hometown synagogue in Nazareth, he stands up and he reads from the scroll of Isaiah, from Isaiah 61. And reading from the prophetic words of Isaiah, uh, he uses that as this framework for what his mission is going to be and what it's going to look like when his kingdom is established. And he says, uh, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me. He's anointed me to preach good news to the poor. If our message of the kingdom is not good news to the poor, then it's not good news. And it's not Jesus's message of the kingdom. And so we have to let this critique us. We have to listen to that. We have to wrestle with what it means that Jesus himself became poor, that he intentionally situated himself there. Yes, Jesus interacts with people across the full spectrum of society without a doubt. But what does it mean that he leans in there? So it can't mean um, less than that. Uh, it at least means that. There's an old uh, mentor of mine uh, who challenged me one time. And he said, uh, don't just pray for the poor. Ask the poor to pray for you. There's something about the experience of going through poverty that develops this deep spiritual wisdom and has the opportunity to develop this deep spiritual wisdom and teach a person what a life of trust and reliance on God can look like. And there's deep wisdom available there. So we need to listen and we need to learn and we need to submit ourselves to the leadership of people who have been through that experience, who have much to teach us. Those of us who have not been through that experience. So Jesus means at least that. Uh, it means at least that. But I think it also means something more than that as well. Uh, I think that the, those words in spirit uh, expand this beatitude uh, and expand our understanding of it. And this sense that uh, it doesn't only mean those who have experienced uh, material poverty, but that every single person must recognize and realize that we are in desperate need of Jesus. The kingdom of God does not live by this myth that you can pull yourself up by your bootstraps, by your own ingenuity, by your own strength. That myth does not exist within the teaching of Jesus and within the kingdom of Jesus. Instead, we see very clearly that every single person must come to a place of desperation and recognize our desperate need for Jesus, our reliance on him, that he can give us something that we could never earn ourselves. We see this in Matthew chapter nine with both the man who was paralyzed and also Matthew, the tax collector. Both of them come to this realization of a desperate need for what Jesus has to give them. Jesus possessed something that they could not provide for themselves. Look at Matthew, for example. 
Matthew uh, has experienced so much material wealth in his life. Matthew's uh, entrepreneurial spirit opened up for him the reality of the Roman dream. Uh, and through this entrepreneurial spirit, he built his own wealth. He found a way to work the system so that the system started working for him. And he got rich off of that. And yet in the midst of this wealth piling up on top of itself, he comes to the realization that he is desperate for something that he does not have and that he could never earn. And he finds that hope in the person of Jesus. He recognized his poverty. He became aware of it. He became awake to it this desperation for Jesus, and it changed his life. And he traded it all for what he found in Jesus. As we move to the next uh, beatitude, blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. Uh, there's so much mystery and power in this as well. Um, when we see this, we understand that this doesn't mean uh, that God... Uh, forces tragedy onto our lives and forces trauma into our lives uh, so that we have an opportunity to grow in him. A lot of times people will go along this theological uh, train of thought that says everything happens for a reason. Everything bad that is happening to you, every suffering that you go through, God is sending that to somehow bring you into a deeper relationship with him. Don't put on God what comes from evil. Don't put on God what comes from evil. As Christians, we don't follow that train of thought of everything happens for a reason. We do, however, because of God's sovereign grace, believe that everything that happens can be redeemed. It's not that everything happens for a reason. It's that everything that happens can be redeemed. It's not that God is sending tragedy and trauma into your life but that Jesus steps in to bear the suffering with you and he walks with you through your experience of mourning. Blessed are those who go through hell for heaven himself walks with them. We see this play out in Matthew chapter nine. There's a religious leader, a synagogue leader. We've seen so much opposition against Jesus from the religious establishment. And here we see a person who's a part of the religious establishment who also recognizes how desperately he needs Jesus. And he throws all of that out the window and all of that respectability out of the window. And he runs after Jesus. His daughter has died. And in this midst of mourning, he goes to Jesus and Jesus is able to heal his daughter. Jesus sits there on the bedside and he reaches down into death itself and brings her back up into life. And this person who's experienced this mourning finds comfort in the presence of Jesus. Jesus is with you. Jesus is with you. The one that Matthew points back to Isaiah and says that this is the suffering servant that Isaiah told us about. The one who suffers with us and for us. And he brings comfort to us. He can comfort us. How? Because he's been through it himself. He has experienced that pain himself. I understand the question of why 
would a good and loving, all-powerful God, why would he allow suffering? I, I, I get that. I wrestle with that question as well. But there's another question that I can't answer either. And it's the question of why would a God who is all powerful and could shield himself from suffering, why would he willingly step into it unless he is a God who is loving and is good and is walking beside us in it? Many of you are experiencing mourning right now. And I'm praying deeply that you would also experience the comfort of Jesus in the midst of that that his presence would embrace you and that you would find comfort in the presence of Jesus with you. It won't answer all of your questions, but I'm praying that you will experience him sitting with you in the midst of your mourning, the one who can comfort you. I have been blown away this week by two things that I saw. I'm not going to go into detail uh, to respect the privacy of people, but two things that I saw within our church community, two different people who were experiencing mourning that I witnessed reach out to someone else who was suffering. Two people who were in the midst of tragedy and experiencing the pain of mourning who even in their mourning reached out to be a comfort to someone else who was experiencing it. How do you explain that unless that's the presence of Jesus within a person welling up into compassion and spilling out in comfort? Blessed are those who mourn. They will be comforted. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the meek, they will inherit the earth. The next piece that we see is this story that's woven into the story of the synagogue leader uh, whose daughter had passed away. Um, and it's the story of the woman who has experienced suffering um, for this extended period of time, for years and years in her life. She's experienced this suffering and she's found no relief, no healing in it. And in her desperation, she goes to Jesus, pushes her way through the crowd, reaches out and touches just the edge of his garment. And that healing from Jesus in, in, in touching him, her illness and, and in the sense of the community viewing her as unclean, and this person who had been pushed to the margins uh, because of her sickness, uh, her touching of Jesus, as we've talked before, should have passed that to him and should have made him unclean. But instead, it works in reverse with Jesus and his holiness and healing passes to her and she is made clean in that moment. This, this picture of uh, her meekness that she was hiding in the crowd, that she didn't even come to face Jesus face to face, but instead just reached out to touch the edge of his garment. She was hiding in her shame, the shame that she had felt from the community around her, but Jesus refuses to leave her in the shadows and he brings her out into the light, the sun of righteousness himself shining on her with healing in his wings. And even in her meekness, she experiences this overwhelming power of Jesus, his holiness, 
passing to her, his healing passing to her. And she is made new in that process. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, Jesus says, for they will be filled. Later in this passage, uh, we see that there's this interaction between Jesus' disciples uh, and John the Baptist's disciples um, who are concerned. John the Baptist's disciples come to Jesus and his disciples. They're concerned uh, that they're not fasting and they're concerned about how they're interacting with food and that Jesus and his disciples aren't fasting. Uh, The Pharisees are upset and offended because of who Jesus chooses to eat with because in this ancient time, uh, the table was this symbol of alignment and this symbol of relationship and this symbol of embrace. And because Jesus is at the table with tax collectors and sinners, they're offended by this. And yet it's the tax collectors and the sinners, the outcasts who become the guests at the feasts that Jesus is throwing. They experience it. They've been hungering and thirsting when they experience fulfillment in the presence of Jesus at the table of Jesus as Matthew invites them in to experience the change that he's experienced. Jesus goes on in the Beatitudes and says, blessed are the merciful for they will receive mercy We see in Matthew chapter 9, repeatedly this theme of mercy coming up. We see that when Jesus is confronted by the Pharisees uh, about having tax collectors and sinners at his table, Jesus answers in this way. He says, go and learn what this means. Go uh, to the ancient prophets and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. The Pharisees were the experts in the ritual law and the sacrifice. They kept that to the T. But Jesus says, you've missed the point of it all. I desire mercy. And Jesus is showing that in ample ways. Three separate times through this chapter, uh, we see that someone, after their interaction with Jesus, it says that they got up. Three separate times. People got up, the paralyzed man, healed by Jesus, and he got up, took his mat, and went home. Matthew, the tax collector, embraced by Jesus, welcomed by Jesus, and he got up from his booth and he followed Jesus. And the dead girl that Jesus raises back from the dead, she got up in the joy of that healing three separate times. And this is what Jesus does. He comes to people who have been beaten down and boxed up and he looks us in the eyes and he says, get up. And he lifts us up with him. He lifts us up out from under the weight that we have been bearing and lifts us up into relationship with him in his rich, rich Mercy. Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Uh, As we're moving through here, we see Jesus interacting over and over again with people who were considered impure. So as Jesus talks about blessed are the pure in heart, yet we see him interacting with people who've been labeled impure because of illnesses, because of things that they were experiencing, uh, because of choices for some of them, like Matthew, choices that he had made, had been labeled as impure and pushed out to the margins of the society, unclean in the eyes of the people, untouchable 
in the eyes of the people, cursed and impure. Two of those that we see are blind men who call out to Jesus for mercy and they experience the mercy of Jesus and they are healed and they are able to see. And Jesus says the society around you has labeled you as impure and unclean, but I'm saying you are pure in heart and now quite literally you are seeing God with your own healed eyes. And two people who have been living in blindness, now their eyes are opened and they see God. And the people who are labeled as unclean and impure become windows through which we are able to see God as well. I find it so fascinating that it's the blind men who literally see the pure in heart. They literally see. And at the same time, the pure in pride remain blinded. Over and over again, the Pharisees prove that they cannot see and they cannot understand what God is up to through Jesus. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. Uh, this, the, the, the Hebrew concept and the Jewish concept of peace is not just absence of conflict. Uh, in, the, in the Greek language, the, the word for peace uh, has to do with a peace treaty and this healing of conflict, uh, this absence of conflict. Uh, that's not the uh, Hebrew idea. That's not the Jewish idea. Uh, instead, it's wholeness and being made complete. That's what shalom and peace is in that mindset. It's not the Pax Romana. It's not this um, peace through victory. It's not this uh, peace by force, coerced, uh, imposed peace at the tip of a sword from a conquering army. That's not what Jesus is establishing here. And it's not even, when Jesus talks about peacemakers, it's not even our modern concept of peace. And we often think about peacekeepers and those who are sent to keep the peace and to kind of hold a ceasefire, right? That's not what Jesus is doing here. He's making peace, not just keeping peace. It's something that is creative. It's not just an absence of conflict, but instead Jesus is boldly bringing conflict over and over again as a form of healing, of dismantling uh, the walls that need to come down and rebuilding them and putting them back in place in the way that they need to be. Jesus boldly confronts and rattles the religious status quo over and over again bringing upheaval to the systems that they had put together, the boundaries that they had built. And at the same time, he's ushering in peace and wholeness to people who have been beaten down and boxed out. Outcasts, when Jesus shows up, start to become family. And they get brought into the family dynamic of Jesus with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we see people being brought into this family dynamic. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called what? The children of God. And Jesus, the Son, is inviting them into this family dynamic. Twice in this chapter, Jesus gets referred to as a son. He calls himself the Son of Man, which is a reference back to the prophet Daniel. 
which is connected to the uh, prophecy of the Messiah who would bring the kingdom. That's his favorite designation for himself. He calls himself that repeatedly. But also the blind men refer to him as the son of David, connecting to that Messiahship. And Jesus, the son, then turns around and twice in this chapter refers to someone as a daughter or a son. He says, take heart, daughter, to the woman who is healed after she touches the edge of his garment. And he says, take heart, son, to the man who is, had been paralyzed and is healed. They shall be called the children of God. And this is the peace that he's bringing, bringing us into this family dynamic along with him. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. Jesus is showing us what true righteousness looks like and he is absolutely persecuted for it. Not, this is not the kind of righteousness that uh, can be contaminated, but instead it's the kind of righteousness that is contagious, that spills out and spills over and begins to transform the people around him. This is not for the perfect, but for those who have experienced brokenness. And finally, Jesus says, blessed are you when you are insulted, persecuted, when people say all kinds of evil things against you because of me. In the same way, they persecuted the prophets. We see this happening to Jesus over and over again throughout the Gospel of Matthew, but we see it so many times in this very chapter, in Matthew chapter 9, where he is persecuted. Uh, they say that he is guilty of blasphemy. Uh, they say that he's a heretic. They say uh, that he's driving out demons by demonic power. They're saying all kinds of things against Jesus. And as we take a step back from that, and we see all that is unfolding and all that is overlapping here in this chapter. We have to confess, uh, who can hardly blame them for not understanding what is happening? Who can hardly blame them for being confused by what is happening? Jesus so often operates outside of the safe categories that we have set up. And Jesus so often is critiquing the way that we have come to view the world and dismantling the way that we have viewed the world. I have deep compassion for my friends, um, people that I love deeply who are walking through or have walked through times of deconstruction in their faith. I have deep compassion for that, um, especially when Jesus seems to be the one who's doing the dismantling, when Jesus seems to be the one who is upsetting the categories and breaking down and dismantling what people had thought and seen before and the way that people have come to view the world. We see that it's not only the Pharisees who are going through this difficult experience in this chapter, uh, but as we spill over uh, in Matthew chapter 11, we see that John the Baptist has that experience too. Sitting in a prison cell, about to lose his life uh, for speaking the truth, empowered by the Holy Spirit. Um, John the Baptist is facing death. He has been persecuted and he sends some of his disciples to Jesus. 
And he wants to know if Jesus actually is the Messiah that he prophesied would come, if he actually is the Messiah that he had been blazing a trail for. Are you who I thought you were? John the Baptist asked that question and he's struggling with that. And the categories have been shaken up for him as he watches what Jesus has been up to. And Jesus in compassion and mercy sends back this message. Go and tell John what you have seen and what you have heard. Go and take him this report. The blind see. Those who couldn't walk before are now walking home. Those who were dead are alive. Those who could not hear now hear. Those who had leprosy have been made clean. Go and tell John what you have seen. The beauty of that is that Jesus is quoting from Isaiah chapter 35. And it's this prophecy and many of those statements that Jesus makes there, it feels as if they're taken directly out of Isaiah chapter 35. Also in Isaiah chapter 35, there's this prophecy about a way of holiness that is made in the desert. That was the role of John the Baptist. And Jesus is saying to John the Baptist, you did what you were sent to do. And now everything that you dreamed of, everything that you long to see happening, it is happening. This is it. This is what you were waiting for. Maybe right now it looks completely different than you expected, but this is what you were longing for. And this, there's this beautiful statement that's made there in Isaiah 35. It says, the desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom. And the wilderness of John the Baptist is now coming alive in the ministry of Jesus. And everything that he hoped to see is now being fulfilled in the life of Jesus. Like John the Baptist, we have to be, we have to keep getting reminded. We have to keep getting reminded. We have to keep hearing the report of what is seen and what is heard because no matter how many times we see it with our own eyes or hear it with our own ears, it is still surprising and unexpected and shocking when we see the way that Jesus moves in the lives of real people. It still shocks us and surprises us. Even after the world has had a 2000 year head start on getting used to Jesus moving like this, we still find it shocking and surprising. As we close out today, I want to remind you that the Beatitudes are not just lofty ideals. They're not just some picture of a future dream. They are real here and now. Jesus shows us that in Matthew chapter 9. We see them coming to life right before our eyes. But it wasn't only in Matthew chapter 9. It's in your life. It's all around us right now. Holy Spirit, give us eyes to see and ears to hear so that we'll believe the report when it shows up right in front of our faces. The way that you are moving here and now. It's real and it's happening uh, it's in our workplaces, it's in our classes, it's in our apartment complexes, in our neighborhoods, in our homes. It's all around us. It's in our neighbors. It's on our sidewalks. Everywhere we look, we can see 
the signs of it. Holy Spirit, give us the eyes to see, the ears to hear, and the hearts to believe when we see what you're up to. What about you? What about you? What are you seeing? What is God showing you through this feasting experience and experiment through Lent? What has he been teaching you as you've been meditating on that passage? And how have you seen that passage become real in your life, right in front of your eyes? What is your report? How are you seeing the Beatitudes in the lives of real people all around you? How are you seeing these signs of the kingdom spring up? right in front of you? What are the signs that you've seen? What is the report that you have to give? Don't only look up and around you, also look within you. What is he doing in you? And how are the signs of the kingdom of Jesus breaking in here and now in real ways in you?
Thank you so much for being with us today. I'm glad that you have joined us, and I so hope that you have enjoyed this time of worship. We're upon a season of new beginnings, whether that be the rollout of vaccines, the start of daylight savings time, or just the new life that is bursting forth in spring, seeing the flowers and trees begin to bud. In a season upon us of of new beginning, it can be a reminder for us to slow down and prepare for what is next. And one of the ways that I love to do that, and I want to encourage you to do the same, is to take some time and get outside. Be among the beauty of creation. Even if that's right in your urban environment, Wherever you may be, there are spaces around, I guarantee it. If you're in the Chapel Hill or Durham area and are looking for places and spaces to get outside and see the beauty of creation, I would love to share those with you. Um, Or if you're interested in connecting with a group of people that gets out um, and enjoys some trails or enjoys some time on the water paddling around lakes and rivers, if that's you, drop me an email justin at lovechapelhill.com. I would love to share some of that with you. The season of new beginnings also uh, is one that is a reminder that we are never alone. Never, never alone. This week is St. Patrick's Day, and St. Patrick has a beautiful prayer Um, It echoes Psalm 139 in so many ways. And there's just a portion of it that I want to pray over you today. It's this reminder that no matter where you go, you're never apart from him. In fact, the Holy Spirit has gone before you. He follows after you and he is all around you. I have this prayer hanging next to my front door that is, is a reminder every time that I go out of his presence. Thanks to Mallory Westner for a beautiful expression of this prayer and a painting that she has done. It is a reminder, a beautiful reminder every day. So let me share this prayer and pray it over you today. The very presence of God. Hear these words of St. Patrick, where he prays Christ with me. 
Christ before me? Christ behind me? Christ in me? Christ beneath me? And Christ above me? Christ on my right and on my left? Christ when I lay down? Christ when I sit down? Christ when I arise? Christ in the heart of every man who thinks of me. Christ in the mouth of every man who speaks of me. Christ in the eye of every man who sees me. Christ in the ear of every man who hears me. This prayer of St. Patrick for the presence of God in your life. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Mm -hmm.